Hey everybody, welcome to the Bold Sidebar Podcast, a podcast for lawyers, judges, and professionals serving clients. I am your host, Attorney Jeff Horn. My task is to interview the best of us to discover the tips, tricks, and techniques you need to serve your client and keep your sanity. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is Jeff Horn. I am thrilled to uh, meet someone today who I've heard speak a few times as an excellent speaker and uh, who has represented people that are near and dear to my heart in the adoption world. Her name is Deborah Gustin, G-U-S-T-O-N. She is a partner in Gustin & Gustin, a graduate of Mount Holyoke College a master's from Emerson College, and a JD from Cardoza School of Law. She brings to this conversation a perspective that we have not touched on at all in the bold sidebar from the adoption and assisted reproduction uh, side of the law. Some people look at this family law. I look at this as really, really a highly specialized realm, and I'm thrilled to have uh, someone who's been an advocate in this world, as well as lawyer, writer, speaker, and I just I'm just thrilled to welcome Deb Gustin. Hi, Deb. How are you today? Very good, Jeff. Thanks. I'm really thrilled to be here with you. So, what's going on in your professional world that I missed or flubbed when I gave you that intro? Well, um, it was a great intro. Thanks. Um, you know, from a perspective of having been in practice for now going on 31 years, which I really can't believe <laughs> it's been that long. Um, my, my practice has really evolved. You know, I've been doing adoption work um, since uh, maybe the first or second year I was, uh, I was practicing. And the, the, the merger of assisted reproduction work into my practice started about a decade ago. And as a result, of my love for this practice, I've kind of gotten rid of some other practice areas that I used to work in um, that weren't as fulfilling or that um, right. uh, were were more time consuming than I that I could take on and still do the work that I'm doing right now. So I really look at my work right now as generically family formation, which is obviously the adoption and the assisted reproduction work that we do. Um, but also family protection because I do a lot of estate planning and estate um, uh, administration, and I also do a fair amount of guardianships. We work a lot with families with special needs kids and um, uh, helping them move on, move their kids into adulthood with guardianship protections. Uh, so right. we kind of look at that as the family protection side of our of our practice mm -hmm. here. Gotcha, and. Uh um, as I say, you're an attorney, you're a practitioner, and that's how you spend your days and make your living. But you've also been an advocate and a leader. Uh, you've been the uh, immediate past president of the Quad A, which I'll let you uh, explain to everybody what that is, which is a really interesting sure. organization. And Maggie Moriarty, who's a, a fledgling 
who has a, a couple dozen adoptions under her uh, wing right now, is um, is aspiring to uh, meet the credentials for membership. So talk to us about the Quad A. Great. So um, Quad A, is, uh, that's the acronym for the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys. Um, the Academy is now uh, going to be 30 years old. Um, we are an international academy of attorneys uh, whose primary practices are clearly in adoption and assisted reproduction. We have about 540 members. Um, all are highly vetted and credentialed. It's, an, it's a wonderful organization. It is the go-to place not only for people seeking representation, but also as a thought leader in, uh, in these legal disciplines. We uh, participate in a lot of litigation as amici. We um, uh, also have a, a significant lobbying presence in Washington, and um, um, many of our members do a lot of legislative advocacy in their own home states as well. Gotcha, gotcha. What put you on the course to leadership uh, in, in such an organization? Because I imagine it was a um, both a labor of love, but also a huge time commitment. Yeah, so I, um, I had the good fortune of one of my uh, senior adoption colleagues here in New Jersey, Don Kosky, is a past president of the Academy. And when I came into the Academy, he was very encouraging of me uh, getting involved in joining the board. Um, I've had a lot of experience in nonprofit governance, um, both as a board member and a, a, as an, another small part of our practice here in the in the law firm, where we do um, do a lot of nonprofit formation and we train boards um, in in good governance. Um, uh, and um, so. Uh, it was it was a good fit for me. I was really excited to join the board, and that just kind of led to uh, my being um, my being elected as, uh, as into leadership. Um, it was a it was as you say a labor of love. It was a labor, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Gotcha. Um, now you get to be immediate past president, which sounds like a pretty good job. Um, it is. It is. I mean, I still have a lot of um, a lot of um, work that I've been doing for the academy that continues and will continue beyond beyond this year as well. Um, uh, we're a constantly evolving uh, organization, and as we grow and as we um, have new challenges um, in the legal field, but um, uh, so it's it's something I'm not going to walk away from it. It's um, it's a great group of people. Um, they're wonderful friends, wonderful colleagues, and I, um, uh, I, I, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay involved, even though I'm in my my board stint ends um, at the end of uh, our conference this May. So, gotcha. Yeah, I, I got that sense. Uh, I also noticed taking a look at your website that you um, have been recognized by the Bar Association for doing some lobbying in connection with the New Jersey gestational character. Carrier Act, Gestational Carrier Act. Sorry for flubbing that one. Talk to me about that work. So about six years ago, um, a group of my colleagues who do this work were contacted by um, Senator Vitale, um, who is a, a state senator from the Middlesex County area. And he was very interested in having a uh, New Jersey begin to recognize and enforce gestational carrier agreements. You know, we'd been living with the aftermath of the Baby M case for 
quite some time, which meant that gestational carrier agreements were not illegal, but they were not enforceable. And so um, people in New Jersey who needed to use a carrier to build their family were really forced to go outside of New Jersey to look for right. a carrier because it just wasn't really tenable to do it here. It was a leap of faith, and many people did not want to take the risk. Um, so we, our, our working group um, drafted the legislation with the assistance of the legislative um, drafters in Trenton, and um, um, our, our bill was passed twice by the legislature, but unfortunately vetoed uh, twice by former Governor Christie. Um, and gotcha. so we, we had renewed hope um, when uh, Governor Murphy was elected that we would have a fresh set of eyes on the bill. Uh, and the legislature once again passed it, and it was sent to Governor Murphy's desk, and he signed it on May 30th of last year. Um, so we now have um, legally enforceable uh, gestational surrogacy in New Jersey. Um, the bill sets out a whole series of requirements to make those arrangements uh, enforceable, and um, as well as to uh, direct the court in terms of confirming the parentage of the intended parents. Um, uh, so it's it's been it's been a great um it's been a great journey. It took us five and a half years to get the law passed um with with three whole brand new sets of legislative hearings and oh, man. so it was a lot of work um but um I'm really grateful to the legislature and to especially to Senator Vitale for his leadership on it. Uh we wouldn't have been able to stick to it if he hadn't have stuck to it. So um, we're really, really pleased. Really interesting and, and really, really exciting and, and great service to uh, to the to folks in New Jersey who and I've, I have friends of mine, other lawyers, friends who, yeah, who had to leave and went to places like Tennessee and things like this and had to involve themselves in, you know, uh, out of state jurisdiction and just a huge amount of hassle, I would think, and, and risk uh, because they couldn't. Uh, Take the chance, take as you say, leap of faith uh, based upon the BBM, which God, BBM has got to be pushing forty years old. Uh, absolutely, right? absolutely, and um, as well as to you know, women who wish to be carriers who were yeah. not afforded the opportunity to do that here in New Jersey, um, um, the the carrier community is um, our surrogate community. Um, you know, a very active community across the country and the inability of women here in New Jersey, uh, you know, who wish to um, assist infertile couples, um, you know, to do that over time was also, a, you know, a denial of, 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 of their abilities to assist. And, and, and um, so we have, a, we have a good system in place and um, it's working. We're very active. We're seeing more and more um, agreements um, and and babies born. I was just with clients this morning, um, actually, who um, uh, they did have to leave New Jersey because the, uh, their baby was conceived and uh, and transferred. Their embryo was, was transferred before the law took place. So we're now having to do a parentage action here in New Jersey uh, to confirm their parentage. Um, uh, you know, under the out of state process. So there's. There are still some people who come back to New Jersey with children born in other states where we still have to do some work here to make sure that their rights are protected. Right. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, your role in amicus 
uh, I could not uh, have a conversation with you and, and let other folks listen in as we do on the Bold Cyber Podcast without talking about um, the the broad topic of marriage equality. And I guess I want to start and go back even before Lewis v. Harris because New Jersey had the domestic partnership law. I know you um, spoke about that in uh, continuing ed. Now, this is going back like 15 years ago. Then okay. civil union, then Lewis v. Harris, then uh, marriage equality, and then the United States Supreme Court marriage equality went through. And so let's run all the way back, right, to, I don't know, what was it, 2002 or three? Uh, 2004 yeah, it's the Domestic Partnership Act. Um, and um, so, you know, the, the, there, were, um, there were a lot of efforts in the early 2000s to uh, talk about marriage equality, to talk about leveling the playing field. And um, the legislature had so many different views on what to do about it that we ended up with our domestic partnership um, law, which was not... For the time, it was it was a momentous thing, um, but it was a very limited set of rights that were uh, accorded to gay couples. Um, and in order to make sure that um, there were not challenges on, on an equal protection basis, the law also included uh, an ability for some uh, opposite-sex couples to enter into a domestic partnership. Um, uh, the most important thing that happened with that law is, is that gay couples who became domestic partners, partners did not have to, if one of them died, pay the inheritance tax, which is such right. an onerous right. tax. Um, and uh, it also eventually, within a short period of time after the after that law was passed, the our probate code was changed to uh, recognize that domestic partners had a right to intestate inheritance. Um, so it solved a significant problem, but those couples were still subject to the estate tax when we still had it here in New Jersey. So it right. wasn't complete. It was um, it created some some problems in terminating relationships. It was an easy relationship to get into, but a hard one to get out of. And it wasn't recognized anywhere else in the country. So right. Um, right. the question about whether it meant anything beyond our borders was always a big question. But then we. You know, then we moved towards civil union with uh, Lewis versus Harris, um, um, a unanimous New Jersey Supreme Court saying that gay couples had to be afforded by the state with the same rights and obligations of marriage, but a split court uh, on what to do about it and what to call it, whether it had to be marriage or whether it could be something else. So the the monumentous thing, the, the monumental thing was that a unanimous Supreme Court said equal rights had to be afforded. Um, and um, uh, But they flipped it to the legislature and the legislature very hastily said, well, we're not going to go down the marriage route. We're going to create the Civil Union Act. And that was in late 2006. It took effect in 2007. In 2007, we had our first marriages, same-sex marriages in New Jersey. Well, we had our first civil unions. They were civil a, a marriage, marriage equivalent, so to speak. Um, but the, the legislature also realized that what they were doing was creating a new status, and the law created a commission to study whether or not civil union as a 
quote unquote separate but equal status for gay couples was meeting the needs of the citizenry and also complying with what the Supreme Court had uh, had ordered. And um, uh, eventually it became very clear from the commission's point of view that that was not happening. That civil union had problems. It wasn't recognized out of state. It um, There were problems with recognition. Nobody knew what the heck a civil union was. When, of course, if you said I'm married, everybody knows what I'm married right. means. And that led to our second litigation, Garden State versus Dow, which resulted in marriage equality in, in New Jersey. Right. And interestingly, as, as I keep referring to as in your dual roles of practitioner and advocate uh, in Lewis v. Harris, you represented a, an interesting group that wanted to be heard on the topic. Who was that? Right. So we... Um, I was co-counsel on an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, to represent a group of clergy people um, from a, a huge swath of denominations whose position on marriage equality was was that the denial of their right to perform same-sex marriages was a denial of their religious freedom and their freedom to exercise their religions. These were denominations that freely advocated for same-sex marriage rights and uh performed, you know, um you know, rights of 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 commitment uh to same-sex couples and uh, under the civil union law they were authorized to do so, but their position was, hey, um, we don't view this as being something that should be different from marriage within our religious institution. We believe that same-sex couples have the right to marry uh, and we should be free to perform those marriage ceremonies. So it was a great group of people to work with, um, a unique perspective. I think one that um, I don't know whether the court really um, thought that they would get such a position. Um, but, you know, amicus briefs are accepted by the court so that the court can can look at a, a variety of different viewpoints and uh, and perspectives. And so we were we were very glad that the Supreme Court accepted our brief in that case as it moved into the Supreme Court. Yeah, very interesting. So we've we've gone deeper down some rabbit holes because it's such an interesting couple of topics, and where you've uh, where you've spent most of your career in the adoption and, and also in the uh, marriage equality area. Um, I, I want to broaden out the question and and ask you. You know, you mentioned the word fulfillment. Yeah. There's fulfillment through your practice and and making a living and all that good stuff. I get the sense you found a lot of fulfillment in your advocacy roles, and, and I'd love for you to talk to that and, and talk to that, you know, to yourself 30 years ago. Uh, would you have talked yourself into being such an active advocate for things you believe in? Well, I that, you know, I, I will say that I um, I never started out in my young life to want to be a lawyer. Um, my undergraduate work and my graduate work is in the theater. Um, I was a stage director and a stage manager, and so, in fact, my transition into law school was really one that was really kind of informed by advocacy work because it all occurred at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, and I kind of felt that I had a a duty as well as an interest in, in doing something a little more meaningful. Um, uh, and impactful, perhaps, uh, than what I was doing. 
So I went to law school knowing that I was going to come into a practice. I, I've been practicing for 31 years with my father. Um, he is my law partner. Um, and um, I knew that I could come into the law practice uh, and, and do the kind of work that I wanted to do. And it also made my law school experience a little more fulfilling because I was able to take some seminars and I did some clinical work and things that, it, you know, some of my law school colleagues who were thinking, oh, my gosh, where am I going to get a job? They were targeting their, <laughs> they were targeting their course selections to, you know, how am I going to get a job at a big firm someplace? Um, right. So I was able to do some more intellectually satisfying work in law school and, um so I always kind of knew that I, I, I wanted to, to do advocacy work when I came into the law practice, but the thing that I didn't know I wanted to do was hang out with lawyers all the time. Um, <laughs> and I, Tell I me what you mean by that. Well, you know, I, I, here I was, I'd moved, I moved away from doing all this theater work. My best friends were actors and directors and playwrights and, and I was like, uh, you know, I get home and I think, oh, my God, do, do I want to join the Bar Association? Do I want to hang out with stuff like this? And I um, I think that was a, a maturation process that I had to go through um, to get to the point where it was perfectly fine to hang out with folks at the Bar Association and um, and do a lot of my advocacy work with the assistance of the Bar. And um, I've been a member of the Family Law Executive committee of the family law section for well over 10 years, about 12 years now, I think. And um, a lot of the legislative advocacy that the State Bar Association does is where I have, you know, slotted a lot of my work into and um, where the where the bar has been supportive of legislation that I'm interested in. I've been working with the bar on that. So, so that's been, that's been fun. And I've also worked with a lot of other organizations to to advocate for some legislation, we're we're working right now on some insurance reforms uh, in the assisted reproduction world that uh, we hope are are going to be moving forward. And we're working. I'm working with uh, ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, and uh, Resolve, which is the National Infertility Organization that advocates for people um, with infertility issues. So we're working together on some legislation here in New Jersey, which um, is very promising. And when you mention insurance, are we talking about getting some of the services connection in connection with uh, infertility under the healthcare realm? Right, right. So um, in 2017, we were able to um, get New Jersey's had a, a man an insurance mandate that covers the state policies and the small employer market. This is really wonky. So, um, it's okay. but, um, <laughs> but we've had, we've had some mandates to cover, um, in vitro fertilization services. Um, but they didn't extend to gay couples because they were based on people trying to get pregnant and not being able to get pregnant. Um, mm. and so we were able to modernize that. The, the state has the ability to impact about 20% of the insurance market. Uh, the rest are either self-insured plans or federally um, regulated plans. Um, but what we're working on now is really kind of, again, part of the future of assisted reproduction is we're trying to get a mandate that insurance co coverage extend to people who will be, um, who are experiencing some kind of a health issue 
whether it's a chronic illness like sickle cell or lupus, uh, or whether it's a new diagnosis of cancer, where treatment for those diseases is going to either destroy or impair fertility. Um, we're trying to get the insurance companies to be mandated to cover the cost of retrieving their gametes um, so that they can store them and have them available in the future when they recover or are in a different place in their lives. There are so many young people who get healthcare diagnoses who, you know, their first thought on their mind is, will I ever be able to have a child? And because the decision to retrieve and store gametes has to happen so quickly so that they can quickly move on to start treatment, many people just don't have the money. Um, especially true for women where the cost is, you know, eight to 10000 maybe even upwards of $15,000 to do an egg retrieval. And, you know, so many people have to make a choice of saying, well, I've got to start my treatment, but I don't have the money, so I guess... I'm never going to be able to have a child. Oh, um, right. So um, uh, the the issue of of, pre- of gamete preservation is a big one now in the infertility community, and uh, we're working hard in New Jersey. We, we, we're we our bill is um, it's passed the Senate committee. It's gonna it's gonna move on to the Senate. We're now in a kind of an investigatory process in the Assembly, but we're hoping by the end of this legislative session we'll be there. Really interesting stuff, and really uh, for anyone listening, you know, you come to everything that you're doing now with with passion, and you're tying your advocacy into your practice. If I'm understanding this right, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why I think you know I, as a lawyer, and other lawyers can be effective advocates for legislation. Is we can we can tell our clients' stories, even if our clients can't come forward to do it themselves, and. You know, we, you know, I get these calls, you know, about these, you know, all kinds of infertility issues that have some kind of a, a regulation or a law that is impeding their being able to do what they need to do. And, you know, that's how, that's where we identify these things. I feel so grateful when I get to talk to somebody who speaks about practicing law and advocacy with, with such um, sort of uh, clear thinking and clear interest and clear passion. It's not just about making a living, I, I, I often, you know, ask folks about would they have a child or a family member go into the law? I'm going to ask you the reverse since you went into the law with dad already there. Tell me about that yeah. thought process as you left the theater, which I'm, I'm assuming you loved it, but you saw oh, yeah. something bigger. Yeah. So, you know, I... <laughs> I, I think my, I, I, my my parents were always really supportive of what I wanted to do, so I didn't feel pressure to become a lawyer. And when I decided that I was going to go to law school, I think the only thing my dad asked me was so if I thought I could make a living. Uh, <laughs> I said yes. Right. Um, and um, um, <laughs> was he worried about you being this starving stage manager? Uh, oh, I definitely think they were. Um, at, at the time, I you know I I had I had moved back to New Jersey. I'd been up in Massachusetts for about seven, almost eight years, and I'd moved back to Jersey. I was living back at home. And uh, so, yeah, I think they were worried about never never truly being an empty nester. So <laughs> I think they wanted me <laughs> up and out. Um, but they were always really supportive. And, um, um, I mean, I've loved practicing, you know, law with my dad. He's a great mentor. He's one of the smartest people I know. And um, um, it's... Uh, it, it's it's nice coming to work every day, 
you know, knowing you're in a supportive environment. Um, I, I, I joke and I, I tell people we, we get along because he knows I'm not going to steal from him and I know he's not going to fire me. So uh, <laughs> that's great. It's yeah. been a great relationship. That's, that's great. I, I have my teenage daughter who I often tease because she cross examines me virtually every day. And, uh, it's just, it's just a natural for her. And, uh, I, I'm always interested in that family dynamic when folks uh, become lawyers, when their, when their parent was a lawyer or their child becomes a lawyer. I'm, I'm so fascinated by it uh, because I find that, uh, a lot of our colleagues and maybe not the ones you and I hang out with too much, but a lot of them are, are a little bit down on the practice of law, on the role of lawyers, perhaps where lawyers fit into society. Do you get that vibe from people, and how do you counteract that? Yeah, I mean, I I do, and I, I mean, there are days when um, you know I can't get something done in the court as quickly as I'd like to, or somebody is creating an impediment to to doing what's right or what's good for a client. I, I get those feelings, and and that's one of the reasons why I I really uh, about three years ago I really withdrew from doing some of the traditional family law things that I was doing, divorce and custody work. I um, I was really kind of fed up with it. Um, uh, it wasn't just that I was um, disgruntled, perhaps, by a- adversaries who were looking at divorce like it was a blood sport. <laughs> but also, I think, with uh, I, I really wanted to work with people who were happy to see me, you know, who mm-hmm. thought that I could help them solve a problem um, and help them with their futures rather than clients who were angry all the time at everybody because they were in a bad place in their life. And uh, so that was, it was a, you know, it was an economic decision that was difficult to make because that was a good practice. But, um, but, you know, we all decided here that it was the right thing to do to try to restructure everything that we were doing uh, in our firm. And um, so I, uh, it was a good decision to make. And I certainly understand where people are coming from because I was there. I know that you found another way to find fulfillment and to uh, pursue your mission with the CASA program. Would you speak to the CASA program a little bit? What role lawyers play? And let me also congratulate you for a recent honor that uh, you were honored as a CASA angel. Talk to those uh, those Thanks. words. Well, so ca- those, yeah. Sure. Yeah. sure. So CASA is the court-appointed special advocates organization um, that provides support to children in the foster care system. CASA volunteers are generally not lawyers, but they are appointed by the court to have, uh, they're assigned to a child, and they follow that child through their journey in state care and advocate for their needs, spend time with the child. They create mentorship-type relationships if the child's old enough to, to build that kind of relationship. And I... Um, I've always admired the CASA volunteer program. They're just great people. They they sacrifice a lot of time to, to be with kids who are in very difficult situations. So I've been involved with CASA to assist doing some training for their volunteers in LGBT cultural competency so that as LGBT kids come into their program, they uh, have a better understanding of that population and can better assist those kids. I was really gratified to be honored by the Bergen chapter um, this month and uh, spend some time with the CASA organization there. Like I said, they're just great people. It's a wonderful program. 
And I would certainly say if there are any lawyers listening to this who are thinking about retiring someday but want to stay involved, CASA is a great place to, uh, to, to volunteer your time. Yeah, Maggie Moriarty, who's our, our common connection here, who is your client uh, right. in, uh, in adopting her three children, uh, Charlotte, Trent, and Aiden, who, uh, who I absolutely adore and love to uh, throw around and then hand back, <laughs> of course, because they're, they're little ones now and my, my kids are teenagers and they love to throw uh, Charlotte, Trent, and Aiden around as well and, and, the, and the kids love it. Uh, so it, Maggie is sort of heading down uh, this road and has uh, had some uh, foster children in her home and really mm-hmm. uh, whet my appetite to learn more about CASA, which I've heard of through my whole career, but I didn't exactly have such a handle on it. And, and these folks that are going out in the field and, and, and sort of nurturing these relationships with these kids are really, really uh, straight from the heavens. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So they had a great event um, here in Bergen County. And uh, so I, I, I would certainly say if, if anybody hears anything about CASA in their county, there is a chapter in every single county in New Jersey. And uh, anything anybody can do to help them, it's uh, you're helping a child get a more stable future. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's switch over to one more case that has put you in the news uh, just in the last few weeks, it's referred to in the news as the Baby J case, and uh, I would, you were involved, heavily involved with the litigation, and uh, yeah. I'd love to hear you speak to that a little bit, since it's a nice victory for adoptive parents and, and agencies, as I see it. Sure. So, I represented an adoptive family, and uh, as well as the adoption agency, in a litigation at the trial court. The birth mother had placed a child with the agency and surrendered her rights to the agency. And the agency placed the child with my clients. In fact, this was what we would call an identified adoption in that the birth mother had chosen the adoptive family. And about a month and a half after the placement, the birth mother went back to the agency and uh, said that she had changed her mind and that she wanted to revoke her surrender. So the surrender, it, it's um, whether you can revoke a surrender or not is governed by a statute. And uh, so we had a, um, I think we tried the case for maybe seven or eight days. And at the end of the case, the judge uh, ruled that the surrender would be revoked uh, and that the child should be returned to the birth mother. So obviously it was devastating. We thought long and hard about what to do with the adoptive family, and we they decided that they wanted to appeal it, appeal it, the decision. I agreed that it was something that certainly should have been appealed, and my colleague Matthew Nunn from Einhorn Harris became the appellate attorney. And I had moved for a stay at the trial court to try to keep the child with the adoptive parents. The trial judge denied the stay, but the appellate division granted the stay. So this child has been with the adoptive family since he was uh, two or three days old when he left the hospital. And um, so Matthew took the case to the appellate division, and we won there. Um, And they support the appellate division 
upheld the surrender. And next Friday, the 29th, we're going to be finalizing the adoption. So we're we're just thrilled. Very good. And the Supreme Court, New Jersey Supreme Court, declined to take the case. They denied. They denied certification. Yeah. Denied cert. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's um, child's now. I guess he's almost uh, 21 months. Almost, I think. Um, and um, cutest little guy in the world, and a very happy <laughs> kid. And, um, and he's, you know, he gets to stay with the only parents he's he's ever known. Uh, right. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah. It's nice to have some victories where you feel good about it from uh, top to bottom. That, that sounds. Like yeah. That's you know, it's it's. Case. I think for anybody who does trial work, and and right now the only trial work I do is contested adoptions. It's you know when when if you lose you feel horrible obviously and you second guess yourself and then when you but you know when you know that the appellate court you know, has has reversed the trial court based on your record. You feel like, okay, it couldn't have been all that bad. Right? I had to. Yeah, exactly. I gave the appellate court a record that they could work with, and yeah. um, so that's good. You're so right about the uh, the curse of trying cases. Is there's always an extra question you might have asked, or a different way to ask it, or a different way to present something, or another piece of evidence, or one less piece of evidence that you might have. Uh, offered when you look back on it, when you let it play out in your head, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) Anyway, good result, uh, good thing for uh, baby Jay. All right, so to honor your time, because it sounds like you're an extremely busy person with, with hats in many, many hats, wearing many hats and being in many rings, I would love you to just help me with my question I ask everyone, your big ask. What Sure. We do, lawyers and judges and courts, to make the system better for ourselves, better for the litigants who come in front of us, and uh, make the whole system better. I'd love your input on that. Oh, gosh. You know, um, <laughs> I have, uh, some things are really minute um, and some things are really big. I think the big ask is more judges and more court personnel. We've got to be able to move cases faster so people can get on with their lives. Even the simple task in my world of an adoption, um, trying, we don't have enough judges to handle these cases. So most counties only have an adoption day, some, some of them once a month, some of them once every other month, or some of them once every other week in the big counties. So if I can't get in, I can't get something done. And I think I think anybody who um, has contact with the court feels that, and I'm sure the judges feel they want more judges and they want more staff. And so when you talk to clients and they say, hey, you know, why can't I get in there faster? And you have to say, well, it's not been our state's policy that they throw as much money as is necessary at the court system. And if citizens say, we need our courts to be better funded and better staffed, then maybe it'll happen someday, but it's not, doesn't seem to be the priority, but it's something that really does impede people being able to, to move their matters through no matter what it is. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that I, is I think a great the, macro. Yeah. Um, this has really been great. Time flies when we get chatting like this. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the passion and advocacy that you bring to your practice. I hope this gives me even a little jolt in the arm. Um, and as we wrap up, I just want you to give the world a 30-second commercial 
if folks <laughs> want to find you, what should they be sure. finding you for, and how do they find you? Sure. Well, folks can find me. Um, our website is gustonlaw.com, G-U-S-T-O-N-L-A-W. Um, and they can find me. Anybody can email me at deb at gustonlaw.com. Uh, and um, as we talked a little bit about, um, our firm uh, does um, uh, adoption work, assisted reproduction, surrogacy work. Um, we do guardianship work for both elders and uh, children. Um, we do estate planning and estate administration work. And we work a lot in the nonprofit community with formation and good governance training for nonprofits. And if there isn't, if there's something we can't help you with, we, we're, we're really happy to help you find um, a, a great colleague of mine somewhere uh, to be of assistance. And anybody can give me a call at 201-447-6660. Well, this has really been great. I, I knew it would be, and you certainly did not disappoint. I hope everybody enjoys this. You used the word uh, wonkish. It was perhaps a bit on the wonkish side, but totally worth it and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and Thank until you, next time, thanks for listening to The Bold Sidebar. It's Attorney Dan Straffy. Thanks for listening to The Bold Sidebar. Share The Bold Sidebar with your lawyer friends and professional colleagues. Please subscribe on iTunes and check out the show notes for the episode highlights and links to resources discussed on the show. Give us your feedback on social media at Horn Law Group, Divorce in a Minute, and of course, The Bold Sidebar. And tell us what you want to hear and who you want to hear it from.